so grateful for what you're doing here. So many things going on that maybe not everybody understands, but you are always at work. And you, Lord, you don't always need our approval. You, you do things perfectly. And so we thank you that you not only work uh, outwardly where we can see you work, but you're always working behind the scenes as well, developing people, causing biblical character to rise to the top, love for the scriptures and love for your church, Lord. That always bring people forward for serving you in a glorious way. And so, Father, we pray that you would do more of that. Now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would help us understand this truth. Lord, may we be able to not only understand it, but receive it and apply it, Lord. Father, be with those who couldn't be here today. Lord, some are really hurting through injuries or surgeries, Lord, or loss of loved ones. We pray that you would comfort them. We thank you for them, Lord. Now, Lord, hear us as we proclaim your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I jumped into this last section of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I got a little uh, sidetracked with my introduction. If you weren't here, I please go back and listen to last week's part one of this. Uh, but um, it isn't hard for me to start preaching on the glory of God and the glory of Christ and get uh, divinely uh, um, <laughs> rabbit trailed in a way. I love the glory of God. I, I, I just get enthralled with who he is, his presence, and who he is and how he expresses himself through the word of God and how we understand him. I love the fact, as we looked at last week, that he is glorified in all circumstances. And we looked at some hard circumstances, we didn't we? The death of the firstborn in Egypt, the crushing of, of Israel's enemies, even in the disobedience of Israel and the punishment that he brought upon them, he was glorified. We saw his glory in the elect uh, saved and, the, and those sent to hell, uh, how he's still glorified even in that. It's an amazing as we pursue his glory how much we continue to learn about him because it pulls our focus off of our own, now listen to this, pursuit of our own glory and our pursuit of his. And that's been the title of these two sermons, The Pursuit of Glory. It's one of the things we have to come face to face face with is are we pursuing the glory of God or are we pursuing the glory of self? Every breath. What's glory? Who's being glorified with that breath? Well, when we start to think about this, we began to look that there is fruitlessness and self-glorification. It's fruitless. In the end, um, great leaders, great people are soon forgotten. Some may make the history books, but you never know. They might change the history books because they don't like it. I think that's what they're doing. <laughs> so, so pursuit of something greater than you, something that will outlast your legacy, is the glory of God, and that's what he's after here. He wants the Corinthians to stop being so consumed with himself. This week I read a report of a German uh, reporter, this young woman who was at the scene of a mudslide where many victims had died, their houses had been destroyed, and in order to try to make a point, she off camera took a bunch of mud and put it all over herself in and, and a way to show that she was there suffering with those. Well, somebody had an iPhone, <laughs> and they caught it. And she ended up having to apologize and go through all this and try to explain her way out of it because she was trying to glorify herself. 
See, that's what man does. Man loves to try to glorify himself. That's part of fallen humanity. There's this constant seeking of self-glorification. And we know where that came from. That was certainly Satan's tactic, wasn't it? Satan is the the ultimate of self-glorification. There's two passages in the Old Testament. I just want to read them both to you that help us understand where Satan was coming from. They're both written to the kings of Babylon and Tyra and so forth. But clearly when we study this, there is the, it is the clear understanding of Satan's fall in a lot of ways. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says this, You who have fallen from heaven, from heaven excuse me, O star of morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. You have said in your heart, listen to this, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. Now certainly there's a reflection to the king of Babylon in this passage, and that's the context. But we understand that's Satan's goal, isn't it? Self-glorification. Later, The prophet Ezekiel says something similar. Chapter 28, verse 14. You were anointed cherubim who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. And therefore I have cast you as a profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Satan loves self-glorification. And he knows that it would affect humans, right? That's the appeal he has to... Eve and Adam in the garden, he appeals to that self-gratification, that sin that was in the heart that soon burst forth. But God's instructions are clearly different. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Whew. You remember when President Bush, I think it was, used the term evil. Wow, there was this outbreaking. How could you dare use that word, you know? The Bible says the fear of the Lord, the the understanding, the the grasp, the awe of God is to hate evil. And then he says this, you go, well, that's easy, I can hate evil. But then he says this, pride and arrogance in the evil way, in the perverted perverted mouth, I hate. See, this all comes from self-gratification. James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. We're always in his presence, aren't we? And he will exalt you. Too often we're trying to get someone to exalt us. Let the Lord exalt you. 1 Peter chapter 5, 5-7, Young men, likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God opposes the proud. Pride works its way into this Christian life that we have, and it hurts the unity of the church. It hurts the direction of the church. It hurts what, 
what we want to accomplish for the glory of God often because pride gets in the way of that. Jesus himself gives this tremendous example in uh, Luke 18. You remember this. He's there with his disciples and he tells of a parable of two men entering the temple to pray, Luke chapter 18, 10 through 14. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. Oh, the dreaded tax collectors. They're linked with the prostitutes and so forth. That's how they looked at them. The Pharisee stood prominent and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and listen to this, or even like this tax collector. Begins to list his qualifications, his self-glorification. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. Look at me. I even take the deal and the lint and I work through that to make sure that I give even the smallest portion. But then, verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, he's not in the presence of everybody else, right? Was even unwilling to lift his head to the, uh, and his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. And look what he calls himself, the sinner. He puts an article in front of it. Not a sinner like, well, just, you know, I'm like all the rest of them. I'm the sinner, he calls himself. It's what a statement, isn't it? I tell you, Jesus saying here, this man went to his house justified, declared righteous rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul in this text is taking everyday, ordinary experiences, particularly for the Corinth church, to help them realize where they're self-exalting, where they're self-glorifying, and when they're failing to glorify God in some of the most simplest areas. And how simple it is, it often becomes so profound. Well, last week we looked at the first two points, and you'll see in my notes here that I put review by the verse two. So let me just quickly remind us where we were. Number one, we said, we glorify God when we seek to edify and die to self-glorification. Verses 23 through 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Well, these first two verses really are summing up the whole chapter of 8, 10, and 11. Excuse me, 8, 9, and 10. All things are lawful. Well, again, remember we said this was a phrase they probably were using to Paul. Well, look, all things are lawful. We're under grace, and we can do whatever we want, right? So Paul's using that. So he, he says all things, yep, you're right, all things are lawful. But they're not all profitable. Yeah, you're right, all things are lawful. But they don't all edify. And that's Paul's point. This is something he drove home time and time again. He's concerned that they were using their freedoms. Uh, for their own pleasure and not for the gospel. There's, there's such a difference between being free underneath grace to, to share with people this great news that they can be saved, they can have new life in Jesus Christ. Instead, just like Corinth, too many use their freedoms for their own personal gain or personal glorification. So he says, is it profitable? He, he's bringing that idea, does it build up or does it tear down? He's really helping them understand there's one way or another. And this was his theme all through the scriptures. When he meets with elders in Acts chapter 20, build up, edify. 
when he talks to this church, he's always used the word knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, chapter 1, chapter 8, verse 1. When he speaks about the leadership of the church to, to the uh, Ephesian church, he tells them that they are sent to you to help you mature, to bring you to maturity, to help you grow and be built. And then one verse that I left out last week that I really love, and I went back and looked at this this week. First Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. Just listen to this. For God has not destined us for wrath. Can I get an amen for that? Oh my goodness. God has not destined. You could actually, the idea is predetermined our future for wrath. He has not predetermined our future for wrath. He has predetermined our future for eternal life with him. So Paul starts this statement out. He has not destined us for wrath. I love that verse. It, it, it warms my heart that God would love this wretch so much that he would decide from the foundations of the world that he was not going to let this wretch be destined for his wrath. He knew what his wrath was. But then he goes on, but to obtain salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, and he, remember, he's trying to encourage the believers. Some, some believers had died, and they're waiting for the return of Christ, and, and so he's, he's trying to encourage them here. He says, we live together with him. So whether you're alive still on this earth, or our dear brothers and sisters who, who have died already, um, we are together with him. There's this oneness that cannot be, cannot be broken because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Then he says this, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. That's the goal. <laughs> Who'd you build up this week? You? And Scott, you really nailed it today. <laughs> Man, my arm hurts. Did you build up anybody this week? Was there someone who needed biblical truth in your life and you did not build them up? See, this is the goal. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Not, not tell them some kind of hypothetical uh, uh, encouragement or make something up for them. Use the Bible. Maybe just say, isn't it a wonderful that God saved us and he's not given us what we don't deserve? I mean, this is what we deserve. Isn't that amazing? I, I think that would be really encouraging if you came up and said, Scott, I just want to tell you today, I am so glad that God did not give us what we deserve. I, I would be encouraged from that if you come up and tell me that. I expect somebody to do that afterwards. I would really build me up. I would be like really encouraged. So, so we use the Bible to do that. Is that what we're doing? And this is what Paul is doing. Look, he says, remember, he says, you know, build up your neighbor. And we talked about that word neighbor. That ranges from your spouse to a stranger, right? And he has to tell us this because by nature, we are fleshly individuals who are constantly in this self-preservation mode. That's our default mode, unfortunately. And this causes us often not to glorify God, but be consumed with self. And that's why Paul has to write passages like, don't be full of selfish ambition, right? And empty conceit, but be humble-minded. Regard one another. See other people more important than you. Don't look out for your own good, just merely for your own good. You certainly have to look for your own good, right? You go to doctors and things like that. There's something you have to do. There's, Timothy says it's a little bit profitable to take care of the body, but it's super profitable to, to, to take care of the spiritual life. And so there's some of that. But then Paul said, but look for the interest of others. Build one another up. That was our first point. Number two, we said we glorify God through our freedoms, not our legalism. 
Well, Scripture really strikes a balance here. Look at verse 25. Eat anything that is sold to you in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you say, and you want to go, eat, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Well, here Paul's asserting freedom over legalism, right? There is a freedom that we have. We love a pulled pork sandwich now. It's good. A little good homemade barbecue sauce in there. It's good stuff. There's a freedom we have over it. And he's trying to remind us of these things. So Paul is saying, if you're, if you're going to buy something from the meat market, from a non-Christian source, just keep your mouth shut. Buy, you know, buy it, grill it, eat it. Enjoy it. See, you have to remember, legalism robs, the, robs your, your opportunity to glorify God. And, and what it does is it takes the glory off of God and puts the glory on whatever, you, whatever your soapbox you're on. That's what it does. So he's warning of those things. And he makes the claim of Psalms 24, look, the earth is the Lord's. Everything belongs to him. Notice in verse 27, he says, if you get invited by this unbeliever, Go right? When an unbeliever bites you over, you should not exchange your freedoms in some attempt to win them. You can, when an unbeliever happens, you well, I need to let you know that I have a conscience and I can't eat that. <laughs> some legalistic motive or something. He says, if somebody, some non-Christian invites you over, eat what he puts in front of you. This is, this is his point. Gladly accept that invitation. Go with an opportunity to show this person why you're free. So Christian freedoms and privileges are not to be forfeited when it, when it comes to, when there's not younger believer there to not offend somebody. So we should, we should work hard at this, to, to be a part, to be in the world, but not of it, right? There's too many religious groups that somehow are in this world, but they're not even in the world. Christ made it clear we are in the world, right? At times we eat what they eat, we drink what they drink, we, we have this um, not yoking together type of fellowship with them, but we do spend time with unbelievers and there are opportunities for us to teach what we believe. Instead, so often, Christians will stand on their legalism. Well, this brings us to a point three where we want to pick this up. Number three. We glorify God through loving self-denial with an opportunity to edify. Paul's leading the Corinthians and us into another hypothetical situation here, isn't he? We're going to see that in just a moment. And, and this is one, as I'll read these verses here, that a Christian friend also is at dinner with you at an unsaved, unsaved person's house, right? And there's this Christian, this young Christian in the faith here, he's he leans over to you and he goes, Psst. Hey, that steak was offered to idols. Meanwhile, you're over here. Oh, what? I mean, you're about ready to take a, a, a great bite of this savory, grain-fed Angus beef, right? And you go, why do you have to bring that up? And he says, look, I don't believe, and he uses this term, I don't believe we should be eating this. Well, look what Paul does on this, verse 28. If anyone says to you, this is meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it 
for the sake of one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Now here it goes. (laughs) Here's another opportunity to glorify God. And one of the things we have to work through is, do I glorify God in the easy situations or the more difficult ones? Something that maybe um, I'm not bothered by, but because someone else is, I'm going to make a decision so I can glorify God and not cause the younger one to stumble. And so what I think Paul's saying here is do not fight or condemn or stand for your freedom in this, in this situation. I think Paul's telling him, give up your freedom in this situation so that this dear brother or sister is not caused to stumble. You see this term for conscience sake. Of course, this is referring to the weaker Christian here, not yours. And so the question is, are you willing to modify your action for the sake of somebody else? That's what the Christians do. We modify our actions at times. We're so broken at the fact that Christ would die for us that we could give that up in that situation so that I could have a conversation about Jesus with them. You may say, well, he's a legalist. Well, that might be true in some way. Or... He came out of something very, very difficult, and you don't understand his past. You don't know what his family's been engaged with, and so instead of trying to figure it all out or call him a legalist, your, your goal is to glorify God and not create your own legalism, right? And so you choose to err on the side of grace, and you just hope the salad's really good. I mean, that's kind of what you're down to, right? Fruit's fresh. Got to get something out of this. But you err on the side of grace, don't you? Grace grace motivates us, doesn't it? You say, well, hold on here. What about the unsaved guy? Am I confusing him? This unsaved unsaved guy's invited me over this house, and now now it feels like I'm going to offend him. Well, I think that's what Paul's dealing with. If, and I think it's pretty clear here that if you can't make both parties happy, look at the text, choose not to offend or cause the weaker Christian to stumble. He's out of the household of faith. That's what the Bible teaches. And look, Christ is more glorified through, through, through dying to yourself and caring for a weaker brother and and then simply trying to edify them, then pushing your own way through. And think about this. The simple simple, uh, idea of giving grace to this brother here and and caring for his or her needs at that moment most likely will turn into an opportunity where you can explain yourself. I don't know how many times this happened to Gina and I raising kids and just living in the ranch world and being among lots of unbelievers for most of our life, and and whether that's baseball world or whatever we were in, it always gave opportunities because people inevitably will say, why aren't you doing this? And you can take your stand and get your little soapbox up and tell them how great you are and, and why you make this stand, or you can say, that's a great question. Can I tell you why we've chose to do something a little different? 
And you now you have a gospel opportunity. And I think not only is Paul telling them to defer to this weaker brother or sister, be careful, don't cause them to stumble. You don't know the whole situation. Be careful, give them preference because they're part of the household of faith. But he's also saying this will create an opportunity. And you'll be able to share truth with someone else. Four, sold out for the glory of God. Sold out for the glory of God. Well, I've already hit this topic pretty hard last Sunday. And again, if you missed last Sunday's sermon, please go back and listen to it. We had a grand time uh, looking at the glory of God throughout the Old and New Testament. But don't miss the immediate context here that attempts to rob God of his glory here. It's, it's found in the little things. It's found in the little things, eating and drinking or whatever you do. That's the context. Sometimes we think, oh, glorify God, you're... You have some kind of great gift, and that's how you're going to glorify God. And, oh, God gets so much glory because you're this guy or that gal, and you have this gift. And, uh. You know what I love about this text? Is God's glorified in the little things. What you drink, what you eat, how you do that. He's glorified by that. And it really opens the whole realm of the church to come in and glorify him in these profound little things, the way we conduct ourselves and little things each and every day, the way our marriages and our homes act, uh, the way we conduct ourselves in the public, not because we have to, but because we get to, because we've been changed. That's just this everyday living a life that glorifies God. Take an account of those things. See, I think glorifying God is a lifetime commitment. When you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, by no cost of your own, by no works of your own, completely unmerited, he gave you grace and forgave your sins, judged his son in your place. What an amazing thing when we think about salvation. That true salvation produces a response that you are committed to Christ now. You can't say, well, I have Jesus and I have the world and I'll bounce back between them both. That's a lifetime commitment to Jesus. And look, brothers and sisters, it bleeds into everything we do. It bleeds into everything we do. Look, it starts with gratitude. Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness. Thankfulness glorifies God. Thankfulness glorifies God. Legalism rarely has gratitude towards it. When you've ever been involved with legalism, and we're all a little bit legalist, somebody said we have a little bit of Pharisee in all of us, when you catch yourself or you get involved trying to help somebody who has wanted a soapbox experience or wants to push their way or something like that, when you get involved with that in your own life or somebody else, what you will not see is gratitude. <laughs> True legalism is not a happiness. I always said legalists are not very happy people. They're really hard to be around. You just, man. So-and-so's coming. Right? And I hope they're, I hope they're happy with me. I hope I don't say anything. Because you're, you're, you're nervous of their standards because they come at you in such a difficult way. They're always questioning everything you're doing. Oh, you should have said it this way. You should have sung that. You should have done that. You should have had this. And there's blah, 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 right? It's very hard and it's not very happy. There's no gratitude here. And when we find these areas in our own lives where God is not glorified, most likely they're places of idolatry and there's no thanksgiving in it. 
That's what Paul wants us to examine. See, I think Paul's trying to teach what biblical freedom really looks like. Biblical freedom, of course, really sees everything that God created. And nothing's to be rejected, as he said in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, is to be received with gratitude. Certainly that is. But if your legalism causes you to offend a weaker brother, he's most likely going to slander you. And I think that's the second part of verse 30. Why am I slandered concerning that which I give thanks? And it's a rhetorical question because you did not consider the weaker person. You did not, you did not say, hey, I, I, can I have a conversation about Can I understand a little bit why you're taking this stand on that? But your goal is not to repress him. Your goal is to help him understand the glory of Christ. But you're careful in that. You're careful the way you go about those things. Look at verse 31 with me. He needs to sum all this up. And this is the, this verse, and I said this last week, is the key verse to this whole uh, 8, 9, and 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. See, this, this makes this very important point, doesn't it? I, I'm, I'm willing to give up my freedom to, to gnaw on that nice piece of camel we talked about last week because... This brother has some inside information, or at least he thinks he does, that that was offered to a, an idol or dedicated when it was a baby to something. And, and so I don't want to hurt him, so I've made this decision to bypass that so that I can have a greater conversation with this weaker brother. And so he says, whether you eat or drink, and I think it's implied here, whether you don't eat or don't drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I love the term whatever. <laughs> what a wide range that is, isn't it? Don't you love that the Bible doesn't say, well, here's 10 things. They would be plastered on every wall of every church, right? Well, here's 10 things. I love this term, whatever. It just gets me all excited because you know, the great thing is God grows me. What, what Maybe a whatever to me might not be a whatever to you yet or vice versa. So, so we don't sin against our conscience. So now we begin to realize so if we see a younger brother or sister maybe struggling with something, we're careful. Maybe they haven't come to that conclusion or they have not studied that passage of scripture to help them understand and maybe let that go. But, but I love this whatever. For me, it's whatever. Okay, Lord, what is it? My life's maybe a little different than you. I spend my life in an office uh, studying God's word and counseling and uh, you know, serving the church. I have a, probably a much different life than most of you. My whatevers may be a little different than your whatevers. Some of you are out there right smack dab in this dying world every day. You hear me preach the name of Jesus here by tomorrow morning, you'll hear his name drugged through the mud. Your whatevers might be a little different than mine. And I like this because it reminds me there's a wide range here of opportunities to glorify God. There's just not the preachers or the singers or, or the leaders who bring all the glory to God. God says, no, I want glory from everyone. Man, woman, child, all those that name the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we have opportunities in whatever we do to bring him glory. Paul already told them that their body was a temple of the Holy Spirit. Where's the temple going tomorrow? What's it going to do? What are you doing with God's temple? Whatever. Whatever you do with it, glorify God. He said, look, you've been bought with a price. You're not a slave of men anymore. This is what he does. And so 
here we begin to examine the character of God. We look intently into his word. We observe that sin dishonors our God and Savior. And this passage is making us understand that there is this other opportunity. Instead of bringing dishonor to him, we have, we have ability to bring honor to God in so many different ways. Think about it. Even the way we handle someone who maybe does not have the convictions we have or they have stronger convictions in certain areas. And so we look at that brother or sister, and we understand by God's grace, they've been forgiven of their sins, they've been declared righteous, and yet at times they they may have a little weaker understanding of of God and freedoms that we have, and so I'm patient, I'm willing to lay down, I'm willing to lay down those things that I want to hold on tightly, I'll let go of that, I'll hold that with a loose hand in order to have the opportunity to share God's word with them. See, this reflects... This reflects that we are not quick to judge. Now, we make judgments, don't we? But we don't have an attitude of judgment when we're with people. I think that's prevalent within Christian society too much. When you're with this person, they, you're always worried. What are they thinking of me? I'm afraid to say the wrong words. Don't be that guy. <laughs> don't be that gal. Don't, don't be that one who, when where somebody's around you, are like, pins and needles, man, I'm really scared. This guy's going to jump all over me. You know what you do is you probably teach double standards. Because most legalists can't even fulfill what they're holding up over time. And they create double standards. And this happens in homes, right? Mom and dads will say, well, don't do as I do, just do what I tell you to do. Double standards. It often creates this and it confuses grace with law. And, and so the gospel is mired down in this legalistic view of things. In a sense, look, it's robbing God of his glory. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. I love this set of verses too. There's another whatever here. Verse 17 Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed. There's our whatever, (laughs) right? Scott's whatevers may not be your whatevers, right? Wherever God has you. What does he have you enroll? You grandparents? Your parents? Singles? Married? Retired? Working? Whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word name, look, remember we talked about that. Name talks about his character, his person, his glory. So whatever I do, do in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we go. Here's the opposite of legalism, giving thanks through him to God our Father. So whatever it is, whatever my role is, whatever those words or deeds that I'm going to do today and tomorrow and throughout the week, I do them for the glory of God with a thankful heart. Gratitude flows from the gospel, doesn't it? Then he puts it into real life, right? Wives. Well, whatever I do. Well, wives, be subject to your own husband. Why? Because it's fitting to the Lord. Well, you know what that verse means? It means wives have this particular role that men don't have to bring God excellent glory, to display Christ's relationship to his Father, who submitted to the Father's will and everything, right? They reflect the church, that it lines its affairs up, not under the elders, but under Christ. 
What a, what a beautiful way for a, a woman to bring glory to God, and yet that is being slandered full on today, isn't it? They don't even want to define what a woman is, let alone the word submission. Oh, my goodness. That's just pure evil in their eyes, right? Whatever. Husbands, you're not out of this. Agape your wives. Uh-oh. Unconditional. Not based on their responses. Not, not giving when maybe you get something back. And what happens is when you bring your little legalistic mindset coming in, you embitter them against you, verse 19. You set standards they can't keep. You set standards you don't keep. And you don't glorify the Lord. Husbands, glorify the Lord. Exalt the name of Christ as you love your wife and you don't embitter them. Children, God loves obedience. Disobedience got us into the mess we're in. <laughs> Fallen humanity. He loves obedience. And one of the ways, children, that you glorify God is you first time obey. Parents, that's something you have to teach. Because when your children are starting to talk, no comes out really easy. Let me grab your Yes, no, yes, no. It just comes out, right? The little fall in nature says, no, 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 no. Children, you get to glorify God in this unique way. You get to show him that you get to show the world that God has designed a plan for the family. A fallen, corrupt world that's constantly telling you just be whatever you want to be. It doesn't matter. Change your gender, change your mind, change whatever. It doesn't matter. It's a lie from the pit of hell. God says, Children, you get to glorify me uniquely by obeying your parents in all things, not just the things you want, but in all things. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. So when, when our children hear the instruction of their parents, which should be given in kindness and should be ready to show the gospel when the instruction is not heeded, but when that instruction is given and they say, yes, mama, yes, daddy, God is tremendously glorified. He's pleased with it. See, these principles have to be taught because parenting's hard. And parenting takes time. These principles have to be taught. Moms and dads, you've been given this great gift. You have to help your children realize they have a unique way of bringing glory to God. Don't let them miss this. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. You know, the opposite is, fathers, encourage your children to love Jesus, to believe truth. So often, fathers' demands upon their children just wear them out, and they lose heart. So many young people have been through the office through the years and said, I just don't want my parents' faith. Because what I see there and what I see what the Bible says are two different things. See, don't exhaust them. Encourage them. Fathers, you have a great, you have a great opportunity to exalt and glorify God the way you parent. Too many missing absentee fathers in the spiritual world. They're in the home. They're bringing the money home. They put some stuff in the bank. They do those things, but they have failed to care for the soul of their children. 
Certainly dads cannot save our children, but we certainly have given this God-given opportunity to be a Christ-like authority in their life to point them to God, and that glorifies Him. Slaves, employees. <laughs> I love our business owners in our, in our church. I love to pray for them. I have a list of their businesses and men and women who own them, and I pray for them regularly. I love it when they tell me about Christian employees that they have. I said, man, when I hired this Christian, he's just amazing. He just works his tail off. He, he, he just, he, he's, he's so encouraging, or she's so encouraging. I, I love going to Chick-fil-A and seeing half of their staff goes to Riverbend. <laughs> They're running around grabbing fries, making shakes, smiling at everybody. Now, I think some of you have to do that, but I pray it's coming from your heart. I'm looking at a few of our Chick-fil-A. Chicken employees over here. I hope it's coming from your heart. And see, the difference is, is you go home from working for someone, and you go home and you treat the, the people you love the same way. So that's when you know you're glorifying God. And so, that, I mean, this thing, I, I know this is hard-hitting. It gets to all of us, right? Do we live lives that glorify God, or are we just merely men-pleasers, right? Just pleasing whoever comes along. Notice it's with sincerity of heart, fearing, worshiping, awe of the Lord. So whatever you do, verse 23, do your work heartily for the Lord rather than for men. God's glorified when his people are faithful, when they're obedient, and they treat one another with grace and kindness like our loving Father has treated us. Right? Just like Abba, Father, you treated me with kindness. You did not give me what I deserve. You, you kindly lead me. And even when you have to discipline me, Lord, you do it with love. See, that's what brings him glory. And this God-glorifying, righteous living, righteous meaning according to God's standard, see, this will deny self. And you'll love others. And you will put a display on unknowingly that you love Jesus and it flows out in your relationships, your personal families, your employees, your, your employers, and, and particularly the church. Particularly. Look at verse 32. Back to our text. I've got to hurry. Give no offense either to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God. Well, you say, well, who should, I, who should I show grace to and who should I love? Well, he gives you a list of three groups which pretty much cover all of humanity, right? Jews, everyone who else isn't a Jew, and the church. It's really three groups in the world, right? And I mean, he's, he's really showing this, right? And so we glorify God with our lives when we are, we're not obstacles for an unbeliever, whether it's Jew or Gentile, to come to Christ, we glorify God when we are not obstacles in the world to who Jesus is. But especially when we are not stumbling blocks to the church of God. And I think this is highlighted throughout Paul's ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He says, for this we labor and strive, we agonizo, right? This is, we agonize to do this because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. And then he says this, especially for all believers. So yes, we live lives that glorify God in the world to Jew or Gentile, but we especially live 
for the glory of God among the brethren. That's what Paul's saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. Remember, he takes on their fleshly wisdom. They're always trying to say how great they are. He takes that on. But he says, no, we do it by the grace of God. We have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. By the grace of God, we've, we've lived in this world, but especially for you through the grace of God. That's what Paul tells them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And then he says this, especially to those of the household of faith. So God's instructions are clear here. There is such a special relationship within the church, and you and I should live that out. Five, the pattern that glorifies God. I love these last two verses, but particularly verse 33 here in context. There's such practical wisdom here. There's a plan that brings God great glory, and listen, it brings believers joy too. So Paul humbly turns to his own example now, we're going to see in this, in order to encourage this Corinthian church and encourage us to glorify God. Look at verse 33. Just as I, that's a very important phrase, I'll come back to it in a minute, also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. Now, just as I, boy, I marked that all up in my Bible this week. Uh, ooh, just as I. Can you say, oh God, Will you use me? Will you use my life? And you can put whatever it is, father, wife, husband, mother, child, employer, employee, retired, suffering, dying. Whatever it may be, will you use my life as an example that others can see Jesus in? And these are hard things to say, right? We can say I'm here on Sunday. They all sound good on Sunday school, but not so good on Monday school. Right? But this is what he does, right? Just as I. Just as I. So Paul here sought to please all men in all things, and he did this by not seeking his own profit. Notice that word. That word profit means that it would gain some kind of advantage, right? Or, or benefiting off of others. I think one of the things that's so unhonoring to God is when Christians try to develop relationships in order to benefit themselves. And believe us, the elders and many others, we keep track of this because there's always someone coming to the church that wants to sell you something. They're not after, they're not here because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They go, wow, there's a bunch of believers, people together. Boy, if I could get half of them to buy my material, boy, how much good that would be. We're always watching that. And believe me, there's many have come through here that you've never seen. That's, that's, not, that's what Paul's saying. I'm not, I'm not after this for my own gain. I'm not trying to benefit myself in this. See, Paul's willing to be all things to all people, not self-serving, but so that grace greater than him would be seen, salvation would be seen, spiritual growth would be seen. And he has lived a life. He has lived a life that glorified God so he could humbly tell people, follow him. I think if you do that, you'll see people get saved. When I came back from, I took an athletic scholarship and God broke my ankles and like a whale swallowed me up and sent me back to Bible college. 
And I remember getting home, and I said, God, I need a godly man in my life. And I called up Jerry Boyle, my mentor. Many of you have met him. And I said, Jerry, I don't know where you go or what you do, but can I go with you? And he said, I'll pick you up Sunday, 6.30 in the morning. I was 19 years old, and I began ministry with him because I saw in his life something so different that I had not seen in so many other men. And I wanted to be like him. I wanted to follow him. I wanted to have the same attitudes as him. I, I, I wanted everything that he had. And as I followed him, he showed me Jesus in a way that others hadn't. And I think this is what Paul says in chapter 9. Look, I became a slave to the slave. I became the Jew to the Jew. I became law to those under the law, but not under the law myself. I became weak to those who are weak so that I might win people. Jerry Boyle won me by the grace of God. Selfish young man who was so engaged in the athletic world and so many things like that, he won me because he was chasing Jesus. The believers, we get the opportunity to do that. Most people never know Jerry Boyle. He's had a ministry in the rural areas of Northern California. No people will ever know his name. He's always had teeny, teeny churches, 12, 14, 20 maybe. No one will ever know him. But he won me. He won me. And so the Bible says, wives, win your husband without a word. Love Jesus so much, it brings us husbands to repentance when we act out of character, act sinfully, win us. Parents, when your children, husbands, fathers, don't exasperate them, win them because you look like Jesus. They'll follow you. They want someone to follow. They're either going to follow you or they're going to follow the world. Win them. Win them. Our final thought is Christ-likeness is an imitation that glorifies God. Look at this final verse in the context Chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Well, this final imperative has suffered probably one of the most unfortunate places um, in chapter divisions in the New Testament. But the language and the argument all agree that this belongs to the preceding context. You can see that there. But he says, be imitators of me, just as I also and really, it's implied, I'm an imitator of Christ. Maybe think of that old Irish poet, uh, he was a playwright, Oscar Wilde, who's made this statement, imitation is the sincere, serious form of flattery, right? We always forget the last part. The last part says that mediocrity can pay to greatness. I thought about that long and hard this week as I was finishing out the sermon to come back and finish the second thought of this, I thought, oh Lord, you say that you are transforming us, present continual tense, into the image of your Son. From glory to glory, you're doing this. From the glory of salvation to the glory of eternity, you are transforming us into his image. I am the meteorocracy. <laughs> your Son is the perfection. And so the mediocrity does not tell Jesus, oh, you need to follow my way. I know what your Bible said about marriage and gender and all this other stuff and family and obedience and all that stuff, but I have a better way. Mediocrity does not tell perfection what to do. And I'm giving generous portions to mediocrity, aren't we? We're safe sinners that deserve hell but have heaven. 
And so, as we transform, God patiently is moving us into the image of Christ. And it's, and it's not just imitation. It's far be, be, uh, beyond that. That word is to help our minds get around. It's God taking a new creature, a new creation, and continually forming it to reflect His Son. And brothers and sisters, that is a lifetime. I don't care how long you've been in the faith. I'm 50 years now in the faith, and I'm still being daily chiseled away by a loving Heavenly Father to look like His Son. And this is why we keep saying, are you done with discipleship? You've arrived? Because that's what Paul said. I, I fought the fight. I'm poured out. He's down to the last moment. Nero cuts his head off, and he's probably sharing the gospel with the guy dropping the hatchet on him. There's no quitting. You may get retreaded, but you don't retire from the faith. And this is why we keep going. It's interesting. He uses a final imperative here. Be imitators. It's, it's an interesting one. It is an imperative, but it's present. So it's this present continual imperative, but yet, and I, I don't want to get too deep on this, but it's, but it's middle, meaning there's a participation in this. Passive is God saves us. When it talks about salvation, it's passive. He did this to us. We received this grace. We didn't do anything. There's no participation. We're just like, I'm going to hell, help me. And he saves us, right? Middle is this participation. And so when I read this verse and, and, I, and I translate it in the Greek to English, I go, oh, Lord, there's participation here. See, we say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God is working within you, right? That's this. He's, he's bringing us around to the imitating this great Jesus, this great son of his. He's, he, we join in this effort of the work of the spirit, the work of the word, the work of prayer, the work of the church, the work of all this together. We join in that together so that we become imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ as we grow in this faith. And here's our fear. Is we get tired and we sit on the side of the race. Instead of running to the end, finishing well, we get hurt. Maybe, maybe you're justified in your hurts. I don't know. I don't know all your hurts. But you give up. And you sit on the sideline of the race of faith, and people are going by you, but you're over there mourning and licking your wounds, and, and you're not happy, and you're not full of joy. See, God wants us to run after his son. And so Paul's let his secret out. It's not such a secret, though. Just do, do what I do because I'm following Jesus. I'm imitating the one who died for me. And I, I realize that as I grow, other Christians will look at me, but my goal is for them to follow and imitate me as they imitate Christ, and then they'll see his glory, and he'll be glorified this. So use your life as a model for what Christ has done. If it's not much of a model, repent. If it's not modeling Jesus Christ, if you're consumed with self-glorification, repent and turn from it. I just wrote on a list of things real quick. And that's clock. Um, humility. Is there any greater example of humility than Christ? Self-denial. Set aside his exposed glory and took on the flesh of man, even to death, the death of a cross. Self-giving. 
He gave of himself in a way that is so almost beyond our comprehension, but we read it, we consume it, and we spend a lifetime trying to get our mind around the self-giving Savior for our life, self-sacrificing. Let me put some practical ones in here. He was in the world, but not of it. He was in the world, but not of it. Think about that. He roamed through men. He had Pharisees just pounding on him, constantly looking for one thing. Oh, your, your disciples ate grain on Sunday. I mean, just constantly hovering over him. He's in the world, living perfectly in this world, but he is not of it. And he made it clear that he was not of that world, but he there was there to save it. He was tempted without sin. Hmm, that's a hard one, isn't it? Anybody had any temptations this week and you've sinned? We've got to learn to follow Jesus. Obedient to the Father. Oh my goodness, he was just the best obedient son ever. Not my will, Father, but yours. He granted new life. You know, Scott, I can't grant new life, but you can live new life. You can live like you have new life. You can live like you're going to live forever. You can have that joy about you, that love of the scriptures, the love of the truth of Jesus Christ. And people say, what kind of life do you have? You can say, I have a new life. And you know what? Jesus also completed the race. He finished the plan of God. Some of you need to finish. You're getting closer, some of you. I'm not going to look at anybody. I don't know anything. But we all, look, I mean, we're all one car away from being in heaven, right? Are we going to finish well? Well, Paul was successful for the glory of God, wasn't he? And he wants us to be grace-motivated, Christ-centered, soul-loving Christians who pattern their life after Jesus, not be drug away by the little things that, uh, that cause us to be legalist and to blur the gospel to others. Be a grace-motivated, be a Christ-centered, be a soul-loving Christian who patterns their life after Jesus. That's the definition of a Christian. Father, thank you for this passage, Lord. And uh, I have been challenged repeatedly through it. Lord, we want to be examples could even us, Lord, me or my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, could we be an example that people would look upon and say, I, I want to be like that person. And then we would have the opportunity to show them the Jesus, the word of God that has changed our lives, Lord. So I pray you convict our hearts today. That we would be more like your son. We would be ones who imitate him. I give you the glory for all that's been said and done here today, Lord. Hear our last song. Hear us as we sing to you, Lord. Motivate our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.